Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. This episode features Deborah Roberts, a mixed media artist whose work challenges the notion of ideal beauty. Deborah's work has been exhibited internationally across the United States and Europe. Her work is in the collections of the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the Student Museum in Harlem, LACMA in Los Angeles, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, the Guggenheim Museum, and the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, to name a few. Deborah was selected to participate in the Robert Rauschenberg Residency, as well as the recipient of the Anonymous Was a Woman grant and the Pollock Krasner Foundation grant. In 2023, Deborah earned the Texas Medal of Arts Award. She received her MFA from Syracuse University, and Deborah lives and works in Austin, Texas. Please visit cerebralwomen.com for Deborah's expanded bio and enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast featuring Deborah Roberts. Deborah, welcome to my podcast. I am excited to feature you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. When did you discover your artistic passion? Oh, God, it was at least in the third grade. It's the, you know, it's not my first memory of doing art, but I knew that's when I wanted to be an artist because I was drawing things for other classmates. I was getting a lot of attention, which I like being one of eight children. You know, you don't get individual attention unless you're sick. And so it was great. So I just kind of knew then I wanted to be an artist and I just kept on going after that. Do you remember if there was a particular body of work or a painting or something that really, really inspired you? Not at that age, but I did know that I love Renaissance pieces, pictures. I didn't know they were Renaissance. I just thought they were beautiful works of paintings, and it was in our family Bible. And so I remember, you know, switching through the pages, looking at all the drawings. You know, I guess my, my mom probably thought I was in, interested in religion. I was not. I was more interested in the in the works that were in the Bible, all the, the ornate type of lettering and gothic looking and it was just beautiful and I was just intrigued by it. How would you define your practice? I think my practice is an ongoing exploration of black identity, beauty, of self-worth and realized and unrealized dreams. I think it is a a passion in which I am forever running to. I think it's something that I would never get bored with. And what materials do you use? I do a, a mixed media base. It's kind of everything, but mainly acrylic and pencil and inks. I do drawings, so I, I use you know graphite buttons, you know different types of things that gonna lend itself to really tell the story of of the person I want to tell. Just black and white photos, a lot of stuff. 
How has your technique developed or changed over the years? Oh, my God. I was an all painter. I was all painter from, I guess, maybe 23 until about 40. And that's when the work really started to change. And I kind of was like, okay, let me take a summer, figure this thing out. And till where it came to it birthed the collage. But I used to do these really big, huge oil paintings, which I loved. I loved the, the fluidness of the work, how the paint went onto the canvas and the movement. And I just would get mesmerized by the whole idea of it. And so I'm a painter at heart. And sometimes it seeks into my collages and I got to like tap it down because what I want from the collages is this flatness. And I don't think I can get that with oil paint in the way that acrylic allows it to happen. So I think I'm a painter. I don't know. I might be going back to it. Who knows? How did your art professors impact your work? The most impact I've had has been like actually my high school art teacher because she taught me how to do everything. Watercolor, silk screen, I mean, pen and ink, painting, acrylic, and oil. She just taught me everything. So I I came out of high school with a well-rounded idea of what I wanted to do and how I could enter into the art world because I knew how to do a lot of things very well. So I guess she was the main influence. I mean, you know, in grad school, you know, Kevin Lorman was my graduate professor, and we were kind of around the same age. So we had really long discussions about my practice and art in general. He was the first one who told me I had no internet presence. And I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even think about it, you know. I didn't care. And, and then I realized that I didn't, so I had to get one. So it was great going back to school with millennials because they could teach you everything. So if, if you weren't a visual artist, what career path do you think you would have chosen? I don't know. I think I think about that a lot because I like mysteries. So I wonder if I would have been an FBI agent or CIA. I'm all dumb like that. I sometimes I really think I would have cat. You know, the the intrigue of catching someone. Then I I think all the time that maybe I would have wanted to be a writer. I can't sing, so definitely not a musician. But the idea of putting thoughts to paper, in, in a similar way in which art speaks to you. Maybe words could have that same type of visual language. You know, I'm not eight years old and have to decide, but I, I could have been, I could be a spy and a writer, who knows. So what do you enjoy most about being a visual artist? When the work comes together in the right way. I mean, and, and also when the work comes together in a wrong way, because you always learn from your failures. You always, even though you're frustrated and disappointed and just wish that it would turn out differently. That disappointment is the inspiration for the next work. As you know, I can't do this, I can't do that and again. So what I've learned from being a visual artist is that to keep at it and enjoy as much as possible. When I get in my zone, it is the best type of endorphins that you could ever have. And they just you just float in the art and it is so incredible. And are you listening to music while you work? Oh, hell yeah. I listen to Coltrane all the time. I also listen to a lot of art, I mean, books, you know, art books and just regular and podcasts. But music sometimes can seduce me in the art studio, which I sometimes don't allow because you get caught up into something and the beauty of it. Even when I'm doing strokes, you know, like doing paint, doing hair, like I'm even getting excited talking about it because I can just start. I've seen video of me just like kind of, 
you know, working. And that's the music that, that's playing in the background that I'm working towards. And I was like, wait a minute. Okay, we're not doing this. So you have to kind of, you, you, you're working flat. And I have a, a piece in my New York show that really shows in the, in the Afro Puffs. It really showed day I was listening to Coltrane. I mean, <laughs> I can, you can see it in the strokes and all the music. It's just the, the sound of what you think the his instrument. I listen to more Toni Morrison than I do Coltrane. When do you know work is finished? God, it's never finished. As far as I'm concerned, it's never finished. I put it out there, but is it ever finished? Do I ever know when to say stop? No, I don't. But I've learned over the years, how to not overwork a piece. So I get to the point where I keep saying no more. And then I know I can do more. I've trained myself not to do more. So right now I'm currently working on a piece that I started in 2000. Oh God, it had to be 2012. Mm -hmm. And I found it and I said, you know what? I'm going to work on this. And we're working on it in the studio right now. And it's looking amazing. But when I did it back then, it did not work. It was an idea. It was a thought. It was, you know, like I said, it was that inspiration that kind of fell through the cracks, whether it would have been, you know, me teaching that year at Syracuse or whether it be just the winter. I don't know what, but it just didn't work. So now we have it back on the wall and it's working. Oh, my God. And I can't wait. I'm putting the collage on top of it. And I think I might do a whole series of works like this. Now that I can unpack it and really get into it and figure out what I wanted to say, because the work was still developing at that point. And now it has its heartbeat. So it can come pump out the information a little bit clearer. Um, are there concepts or thoughts that connect the work? Yeah, it's always concept and thought that connects the work, uh, especially this work I'm doing right now is Black children. It's how black children are perceived in the world, how they are the adultification of black children and how the people do not care for them, do not love them in a way that they love their peers, do not give them the benefit of the doubt in which they give their peers, who are frightened by black children, who monsterize them. It always has that thought. It has that vision to kind of knock down those type of stereotypes, those types of thoughts and patterns that 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 people live with the unconscious bias or conscious bias toward black children. So yeah, it's, it always beats in that, that direction. How are you motivated by color? Like what, what's the process of choosing the amount of color that you add and the, the colors that you add? Well, I love color. When I started doing these works, well, I was intrigued by the idea because my mom sent me three pictures of me and my sisters when we were eight, nine, and 10. And we had the same damn dress. And one was red, one was purple, and one was yellow. And we didn't get to choose the colors of which one we liked. Well, I got the red dress, but I would have preferred the yellow one. I didn't want the green one, but that's my mom made those choices for me. So when I started doing my work, you know, I love everybody looks at color theory. You have to have it in graduate school or undergrad. But the idea of applying different patterns and colors that normally don't go together, marry them together to see how they work. And color became very important. It became very important to my practice. Not only that, it became the lure to get people to come into the work. It wasn't frightening. It was, it was beautiful. It's soft. It's engaging. And it allows the viewer to come in 
and see what I'm talking about. And so it became my second hand and my third hand because it, it was a part of the process. It became a tool, which I, I still employ today. When creating, how often do you think about who your audience is? I never think about it unless I'm doing something that speaks to a specific incident. Child Q with the little girl in, in Europe who was stripped bare bone because they said she smelled like drugs. Or when it's Raphael who walks up on a doorstep and was instantly shot. When a little girl is going around spraying apple cider vinegar on a tree as a science project and someone calls the police because they're afraid of a little woman. Those type of incidents trigger sometimes the type of work that I do. But the overall work that I'm working on, like right now, I'm working on a piece called Siblings. And it's beautiful black children all hugged together, all love each other. And then I put these little tropes that what I think other people see, not what we see. What we know, we know that we love, but what the world sees. So I try to bring people to the center in my practice that to see the humanity and, and the people that I do. I guess that's the only thing I think about when I'm, I'm doing these works is that can people understand that we're all human, you know. When do the titles of the work enter the creative process? Oh, my God, those are the worst. <laughs> That's, I mean, the titles come at the end unless it's already in the work. It's born in the work. And I've had that happen where i drawn the work, the image down, and I step back to see the drawing, and the title is there. And I just can go write it in the work. Sometimes I struggle with the titles. I do a lot of jazz. I love jazz. You know, uh, Artie Shaw, I look at, uh, you know, Coltrane, like I said before, you know, Davis, everybody. I look at titles. And sometimes jazz men have the best titles, the cool titles that I can add to my work. Sometimes I look at text. Sometimes just things just come about, songs, and I, it helps me with titles. Sometimes you're so close to the work. You kind of mistitle stuff. I've done that before. When I looked and said, that's not the title of the work. So titles are really hard. Have you ever changed the title? Yes. And sometimes, you know, I have to tell the client I changed the title. They don't care. Some of them say, why? So you got to give them an explanation because it's their work now. It's always my work, by the way. So you have to give them a little explanation of why you did that and why it works best. And most people understand it. They know you're the artist. You know, you weirdo. And so they, they tend to you know, absorb it. It doesn't happen often, but every time it's happened, you know, you know I have an attorney friend who told me, you know, my new book, it has a different title. And he said, in the book, it's Vanilla Ice, but in my receipt, it says Vanilla Dreams. You were thinking of a Vanilla Ice. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. So I had to explain to him, so we're going to like put two titles on his, on his receipt so he can feel good. What are you excited about right now? I'm super excited about my book. I, you know, I just mentioned it. It's the uh, 20 years of artwork. Because I always think that people think six years ago when I came on the art scene that that was the beginning of me. When that's 35 years prior to that, I was really working very hard on my practice. And one of the things that this book does is it opens the doorway so that you can look backward into my work and see how the thought process of creating this work came about. It wasn't easy. It wasn't popular. It's what I want the work to say. 
And it just took a growth process. And I tell people all the time, the thing that was missing from my work was literature. All this time, I didn't know that until I went to graduate school. And that was the missing link. And once the literature shore up the work, just by history, the work became better. And it's part of that that's, that's explained in the book that I'm trying to get people to, 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 to see and, and realize that this stuff you see today was being created back in, you know, 1980, 1988. I was constantly working on this. It's just, it was, it was immature and it had to grow up. How do you keep learning? It's easy. Oh, my God. I can tell you right now, we're trying to do some sculptures, and Simone Lee has nothing, nothing to worry about. I am boggling, bungling it, and it looks like a high school school project right now. I'm hoping that my idea that I have in my head can be produced, that I have the language in order to have tell the fabricator what I wanted to do. So I'm always learning and trying to learn something new. I'm also going back. I'm going to do some sear screening on top of some of these collages. I'm taking a year off to really grow my practice and to make it better. I've not hit the end of my growth as an artist, as a person. Always a work in progress, and my work is always a work in progress. So, yeah, I'm excited about all the new things that I can possibly do and say about black children and how we should love and care for them and cherish them. I'm curious, what is this uh, connection you have with children specifically? I felt like when I was growing up in the sixth grade, it was the first busing incident. I didn't have an advocate. I didn't tell my mother what was happening. So partly she's not to blame for that, but I had all, you know, I gave all the signals that something was wrong. I just didn't verbally say it. And I think that children need advocates. They need people to to say, wait a minute, why are all the black kids in this room and they are the, the problem children? Why are, you know, black children, you know, sent to the office more times than anybody else? You know, when they're trying to figure out who they are, but they are considered problem kids, when part of our history and our culture is to laugh and to talk loud, and just to have fun and shit and different types of ways to express ourselves. Somehow that is something negative. Our hair, which grows up to God, something is wrong with it. it. It can't look like that. All those things, you know, it starts very early. Sometimes it's very, you know, I don't want to say it's sinister, but it's little, little things that chip at you. You know, by the time, I would tell you, by the time you're 12, you have a thousand cuts on your body. From, from different things people have done and said to you. And how can we try to eliminate that, you know, or, or reduce it? And so that's why it's so important because, you know, kids are children. They can't, they don't have the background or, or the, the experience to express themselves in ways that they need help and they need someone to see them. And sometimes if you're not heard or seen, you act up, you become visible in the world that's, that sees you as invisible. And so and you, sometimes people need to step back and say, what is the problem? And really listen. And so that's what I try to do in my practice. And I guess it's my six-year-old, my sixth grade self, finding her own voice. Do you feel black art can be defined? No, I, I think it's art. I think it's just art done by people who happen to be black. 
I think it goes into every description that you have with other art. No one asks why people dislike art. It's art. And the same thing can be said about works that are done by Black people. Yeah, it's talking about historical issues that relating to cultural lifestyles of Black people, but it is art. And I love the idea that it is getting so much attention, you know, that the art world has stopped and paid attention to it and listened to it and values it both financially and historically as any other time in the world. So I think it's great, but I think we have to start looking at it as art done by Black people. If we even have to put that last part in, we can eliminate that. Maybe just art. What do you feel is the purpose of art? Oh, God. Art art is so wonderful. No one needs art. Well, this guy told me this before. He said, no one needs art. And I beg to differ. I was, I, I, at that point, I kind of absorbed it and didn't you know, speak back to it. But we need art. Art creatives, we put smiles on people's face. We challenge people. We gain agency through art. We do so much through art. Art is so very important. The first sign of civilization was markings. People pick up a stick and started to make marks on a wall before they learn how to speak. So art is so very important. It is the historical marker of our world. If somebody go back you know, 100 years from now and look at work, and they can pretty much tell what was happening in society at that time without even going to a book. So art is an artifact of the time in which we live. So I think it's very important. I've really appreciated this talk. It's uh, been fun. So this is our last question. As an artist, what do you feel is your role? I think my role is to do the best that I can. I don't know all the answers. No one really does. But I can make some stabs at it. If I can change a few people's idea about to take a, you know, about what they their perceived idea of someone else, is to take the time and say, well, what do you think? Or what do you see? If I can do that with my practice, then I would be so happy. I've always told people I want to be in the canon. This was before anything happened. I kept saying I would like to be in the canon. I thought it was going to be some pimple-faced little girl, art historian, who stumbles on my work and say, who was this artist? And was able to go back and find me in my practice and my statements and said, oh, my God, we need to know about this artist. I'm very blessed and fortunate that I've made a mark and that that can happen. And I can be alive to witness it. So I'm very excited about that. Well, thank you for all you do. And thank you for uh, your sensitivities to, to our children. It's so important. But uh, thank you for your time, Deborah. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.